This is week number 67 in our study of the Gospel of John. And remember a couple weeks ago, uh, last week we were off because of Easter, but two weeks ago we finished chapter 12. And chapter 12 is the final uh, statements or proclamations of Jesus' public ministry. Um, you remember that he called, uh, invited really, those people to believe in him, to believe in the light that they might become sons of life. And then we, we discussed how sadly most of those people did not believe him. They never placed faith in him while he was in his public ministry. And really that was by the, um, the ordination of God. It was God using that unbelief to accomplish his plan and his purposes. And we'll see this morning as we move into third chapter 13, that's exactly the way that Jesus was thinking about this. We'll, we'll get a view in chapter 13 into the thoughts of Jesus. Matter of fact, chapter 13, there are three major things that are covered there. The first is the washing of the feet that we'll walk into today. And then you have the revelation of Jesus as the betrayer. And then finally you have the, um, the statements that Peter would deny Christ. And some of these things, not the washing of the feet. The washing of the feet is strictly Johannine. It's only John who writes about it. But then the other things that are in chapter 13 are also covered in the other Gospels. And conspicuously, John does not write about the Lord's Supper, uh, the institution of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Because by the time John comes to write this Gospel... The church has been practicing the Lord's Supper for 30 years. No one needs to be instructed in it or be taught what the origin of the Lord's Supper is because the church would have been practicing it, uh, the same church to who John was writing this, this gospel, so he doesn't cover it. He just leaves all of that out. The other gospels do a good job of uh, agreeing and stating the same things about what Jesus did uh, during that Passover meal. And matter of fact, John doesn't cover the meal hardly at all. But then, once you move out of chapter 13, you get into this section of scripture. It's uh, chapters 14 through 17. Four long, detailed chapters that are basically Jesus Christ speaking to his disciples. And it is strictly Johannine. No other gospel writer writes any of this conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. Once they, all the others say they had the meal, they instituted the Lord's Supper, and they sang a hymn, and then they went out to the Mount of Olives. That's what all the others say. But John goes through this long, and we'll be here for a while, um, really four full chapters from thir- uh, 14 through 17 of Jesus Christ in his private ministry. That's what really chapter beginning in 13, all the way through 17 is in John. We've had 12 chapters of John the Baptist and Jesus in public ministry, both in Galilee and in Judea. And now that's ended. You remember uh, a couple weeks ago we saw that when Christ made those final statements of calling people to believe in the light, that they might become sons of light, that he then went and hid himself. So we don't know if he's been hidden for one day or two days. It's somewhere in that time frame where now he goes into Jerusalem. 
into an upper room privately to have this meal with his disciples and then to sit and teach them who knows how many hours this took, long into the night, for Jesus Christ to lay all of this out. And really what this whole conversation is about is how God is going to use these men who Jesus is teaching, these disciples who will become the apostles of the church to lay the foundation for the church, and then how God is going to build on that foundation to build his kingdom in, in, the, in his own church. And so that's what we're going into. This is a long passage. There are many different topics that Christ covers in this conversation because he wants to instruct his disciples, not so much for the next day or the next weeks, but for when the Spirit comes and fills these men that they might become apostles and begin to teach the truth. That's what Christ has got in his mind. That's what he's preparing them for. That's what he's laying this foundation for of what will come later. And they have no idea. We'll just talk about it right up front. They have really no idea how all of this is going to fit together. And until the Spirit fills their hearts and their minds and gives them understanding, they won't understand. So for the next really 50 days, these men are somewhat in the dark, don't really know what's going to happen, but then at Pentecost it all comes together for them. And then you see uh, uh, a higher spiritual plane for them, they're filled with the Spirit, and all of these things that Christ has been instructed in, we'll see in these passages, the Spirit uses to guide their minds and their hearts. So that's what's going on in these passages. It's the tenor of the book dramatically changes at this point. We've had public proclamations and ministry and teachings and confrontations and um, back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees and um, the Pharisees plotting to kill him and all of this. The next five chapters are totally different. This is Jesus in a tender, compassionate way, very patiently with his disciples ministering privately. So the whole tenor changes as we get into chapter 13. So what we'll do this morning, we'll just read the first 11 or 12 verses and then struggle to get through this passage because there's a lot here. Beginning in John chapter 13, verse 1, there the scripture reads, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him and said, What I do now you do not real what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. 
Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Okay, so we have this strictly John writing verses that no one else writes about. You, you won't find these verses in any of the other Gospels. So we have, as we've seen all the way through John, John giving us insight into really the heart and the mind of Jesus as he begins to have this conversation with his disciples. And, and he will teach many truths through this night, but he'll also, as we see here, portray those, those uh, teachings by taking action. So, you remember from the other Gospels that when you get to this point, several things have already taken place. Um, Judas Iscariot, we looked at this over in Luke, that Judas Iscariot has already gone to the, um, to the Jewish leaders and made a deal to betray Jesus Christ. He, they've already made the deal. The, mo the money that's going to be paid will be 30 pieces of silver uh, upon that uh, betrayal. And then you also will remember that um, Jesus has sent two of his disciples into Jerusalem to prepare the Passover feast for them. Now, Bible trivia, right? Which two disciples did Jesus send to go and prepare the Passover feast. Peter's one of them. The other one? I'll give you a hint. He's writing the book. John. Now, Peter and John, when you see a list of the disciples, how is it always listed? Who's first? Peter. Peter. Who's second? James. James. Who's third? John. John. Okay, so those are the three closest disciples to Jesus Christ. Now, why is it, do you think, that for this task of preparing the Passover feast, he sends Peter and John, not just the lower guys, who would have been more of the, not if there are any less apostles than the others, but in any group of, of leaders, there's always naturally um, a group or an individual who rises above the others, just by the way that it works, by people's personality, um, by their temperaments, by their desires. All this, that's the way that it works. You know that. If you've ever been in a group, you've ever been selected for a jury. There's always a guy that rises, right? And every now and then you have a fight about who's going to rise. The disciples had those same fights, by the way. But Peter and John are clearly two of the leaders. Why did Jesus Christ pick those two to go prepare the Passover feast? I mean, it's not in Scripture, okay? So you just got to think. <laughs> All right, that they would do it the right way? All right, I think that's part of it, so that they could be an example to the other guys. Maybe put forth the importance of it? Okay, I think all of those things are true. And if you just think about what happens during that Passover feast, I think that Jesus was, more than anything, 
using those guys as an example of what he was going to demonstrate. That it doesn't matter what your rank is or how you stand in the group or whatever, that the greatest way to lead people is to serve them. So these guys, if you think about it, they went and they bought the lamb, they sacrificed the lamb, they cooked the lamb, they got all the other fixings that had to go, they had to lay all the utensils out, everything had to be prepared. These two guys are the two who went and did all that. Okay, and apparently they're there all day because he sends them during the daytime and then the rest of them don't come until evening. And I think part of that is because Jesus was hiding himself from the people. He didn't want a crowd. He wanted to be privately with his disciples. This, this night, Jesus is very, very intentional in what he does here during this, this meal. So he sends um, Peter and John to prepare it. Judas either that day or the day before, somewhere right in that time frame is where he goes and makes his deal with um, the Jewish leaders. You remember that we went through all the anointing by Mary of Jesus and when that happened, and the best we can put it together from the other Gospels, not from John, because John doesn't write in chronological order in chapter 12, but from the other Gospels, it appears to be two days before the Passover is when Mary anoints Jesus Christ. And then and pick up in Luke in chapter 8, right after that anointing, you remember that Judas uh, rebuked Mary for doing that, maybe a couple other disciples with them. Christ then rebukes Peter, I mean <clears throat> Judas for rebuking uh, Mary. And then right after that, if you put the Gospels together in Luke, is when Satan entered into Judas, and Judas went and made his deal with the <clears throat> Jewish leaders. So all of this has happened in this one or two days just before this meal. Okay, John doesn't write any of that. So that's why I cover that, is to sort of give you the setting of what's going on. Now they come together, it's the night before Jesus is betrayed. It's the night in which he is betrayed. So late into this night, you know, maybe 12 hours later or something like that, early in the morning, is when they'll come and get him out of the Garden of Gethsemane. So this is maybe 12 hours before the betrayal. David, what, what exactly was the deal? Because, it, I mean, Jesus was fairly well known. Right. Is it, is it just locating him at that particular time? I mean, what, what did Judas do for the... You know, that is somewhat so, mysterious. But what, what Judas would have known that nobody else would have known is where he would be that night. Judas would have known, you know, because, I mean, the Mount of Olives, yeah, lots of gardens, lots of places where you could be. Uh, it's where the um, Jesus and the disciples often stayed on this mountainside when they were in Jerusalem. So exactly where he would be, Judas would know. But no one else would know. And so Judas takes them to Jesus Christ, and then the, the kiss of the betrayal, I'm not exactly sure, but um, maybe because Judas could better recognize him in the dark and the others couldn't, I'm not real sure. Because you would think all of them would have, would have recognized Jesus Christ. But maybe in a, in a dark garden in the middle of the night with uh, you know, 13 men there, um, make sure you get the right one, Judas will go up to him and, and literally kiss him on the cheek to betray him. So... I think that's probably what's going on. Uh, Judas would have known they were in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, but nobody else would have known that unless you were one of the insiders. Okay, so that's part of what's going on there. Now, this is the um, 
the feast of the Passover, um, just so we make sure everybody's on the same page. Peace of, feast of the Passover celebrating what? The exodus out of Egypt, right? On the night of the Passover, what took place? Moses instructed all the households to sacrifice a lamb, take the blood of the lamb, put it on the lintel of the door, right? So on the top of the door, so that when the death angel came through the, the city and the camps, that someone who had the lintel painted with blood, he would pass over. But if you didn't have the lintel painted with blood, then the firstborn of that house would die. And that ultimately is what broke the back of the Egyptians. Uh, they uh, asked the Israelites to come in and plunder their households and then leave. And they did. You wonder where out in the desert, where they get all those riches and all those gold things that they could give to the offering so that the temple could be erected? It came that night after they death angel passed through and the Egyptians said get out of here but plunder our houses first they did and they went in and they took all the riches of the Egyptians and then left and so that's where all that money out in the desert comes from all those gold trinkets and uh, things that they melt down to build the, uh, the tabernacle and so this is what is being celebrated by all these Jews is this Passover feast all right, and we've talked about this a little bit you remember this Passover feast was really celebrated on two different nights by the Jewish camps. And those two different nights were because the northern kingdom considered that the day began at sunup and then would continue until the next sunup. Whereas the southern kingdom believed that the day began at sundown and then would continue till the next sundown. And because of that, when you ate the Passover meal changed. So those from the northern kingdom in this particular week, Passover is on Friday, the day before Sabbath, Saturday. And so if you were from the northern kingdom and all the northern kingdom would have been doing this, you would celebrate Passover on Thursday night. If you were from the southern kingdom, you would sacrifice your lamb on Friday and eat the meal that evening and then go into both the Passover and the Sabbath. And so, because of that, all of the disciples and Jesus, except for Judas Iscariot, are all from the northern kingdom. Okay, Only Judas is from Judea. All the others are from Galilee. And so, because of that, because of the timing, they ate their Passover meal on Thursday night. Now, by the great orchestration of God and by the ordination of God that people would have this meal on a different time, that allowed for Jesus Christ to be nailed to the cross at the exact time that the southern kingdom was slaughtering their lambs for the Passover meal. So only God could orchestrate that, could lead the minds of men to do those kind of things. And so Jesus Christ was actually nailed to the cross at the time that the um, the lambs for the southern kingdom were being sacrificed at the altar in the temple. So a perfect ordination of God to use the Passover to sacrifice his own son. And so we've talked about all these things, but I just want to put them back in your mind because now we're at that day. We're at that time of the sacrifice. We're imminent before it. 
And so this, all of this is in the minds of Christ, in the mind of Christ. You know, it's not in anybody else's mind, right? Nobody else has an idea that any of this is going to happen. Not even the Jews who had him crucified know, because if you think about it, Judas is in this upper room with them. They have no idea that Judas is going to come that night and betray Jesus Christ. They don't know that's going to happen. They just know it's going to happen. It's going to happen at an opportune time, but they don't know when. Judas picks the time. Actually, Jesus picks the time, but Judas does the action. And so nobody knows this is going to happen except for Jesus Christ. I don't even think probably Judas knew it was going to happen. Because, you know, Christ singles him out in this meal. He tells him what to do, and Judas goes and does it. So I don't even think it was in the mind of of Judas that he was going to do that this night. I think it's only in the mind of Christ at this point. Nobody else has a clue what's going to happen the next day. So this, you know, for me, this just shows that that Jesus was orchestrating all of this. This is his plan, and he's the one executing it. And I actually think that John says exactly that as we get into this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, in English, this reads as one sentence. I'm not sure in the Greek, but we'll pick it apart in the English. Okay, because I want you to see what is the main verb and action of this passage. What is actually happening and going on here? Now, I don't know if you're an English scholar or not an English scholar, but we're going to try and just pick apart the phrases, okay? And, And understand what John is trying to communicate to here. Because John, in these first two sentences, the first four verses, there is a ton of information, but there's only really a little bit of action. But the action is crucial and important, and I want us to understand what it is. So if you, if you come in and you begin to read this, and he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. What's the subject in this verse, in this sentence, in this verse? All right, Jesus is clearly the subject. But picking out the verb is not so easy. That first phrase where he says that it was the time of the Passover before the feast, now before the feast of the Passover, John is simply giving us a a declaration of where are we in time space, right? There's, there's no subject, no verb there. He's just saying, it's now. Here's where we're at in this uh, playing out of what happened in the events of the life of Jesus Christ. So nothing going on there. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come and that he would depart out of this world to the Father. That Jesus, knowing that his time had come and that he would depart out of this world um, to his father. What, what is that? What is that phrase? Having Jesus knowing that his hour had come. What does that phrase do? Is that the, the verb of the sentence? Uh, is it giving us more information? What is that? 
is a predicate. It's actually called a gerund in English, right? It's a gerund phrase that describes uh, the subject, in this case, Jesus Christ. And so what is true about Jesus Christ at this point in John's Gospel? That we're knowing. All right, that Jesus knew, no one else did, that now was the hour. And we've seen that all through, right? In what way have we seen the hour up until this point? It's not the hour, right? Multiple times we saw where Jesus was able to slip away from them because his hour had not yet come. That hour is now. doesn't mean the literal hour. It's just speaking in the, in the life of Christ, this is the time that he came for. This is where the crucial events happen. Okay, what else is true about Jesus Christ by this phrase? Right. He knows, not only is he going to be departing, where is he going? Back to the Father. Because of, and then the next phrase kind of tells you why he says, back to the Father, well, knowing that he would depart out of this world to the Father. So, in the mind of Christ, and we've talked about this a little bit, when... He says he's greatly troubled. Remember, he was frustrated with people because they could not understand or they did not understand what was going on. But at this point, Jesus Christ, with the disciples only, what's in his mind? I think that John here gives us what is in the mind of Christ. What is on his mind? Equipping them. What's that? Equipping them for their... Equipping them, but why? Because he knows what's coming. He's about to leave. Because he's getting ready to be gone. Yeah. He's get, this is his, it's not his last opportunity. Because he'll be there for 40 days with them. But before the sacrifice, this is his last opportunity. And this is what's in Christ's, Christ's mind. Is that this is the last time when as a man not resurrected man, but as a man having been born and lived with these guys for three years, this is the last time I have to sit with them and talk to them. Because I'm getting ready to be other world. I'm leaving this world. I'm getting ready to go back to the Father. Okay, so this is what's in Christ's mind. I think these things are important as we go through this. And so then he says, um, John writes, having loved his own who were in the world, is that the subject of, is that the verb of the sentence? No. I don't think so. Again, that's a jarring phrase. What does it tell you about Jesus Christ? What kind of love do you think this is? Having loved those who were his own. What, do you, what kind of love, what, verb, what word for love is this one? This is agape love. So this isn't like he loved them because they were so close and they'd been living together for three years and they'd gone through all this hardship, right? Or they had a kindred spirit or they had things in common or because they had come so far since he first called them. None of that is what this is about. That's not what John is writing. John is, and you got to remember, John's the guy who prepared this meal. John was there. He's an eyewitness of what's going on. You know, um, Matthew was an eyewitness, right? But how about Mark and Luke, who wrote the Gospels? Not there. They weren't there that night. 
they were instructed by the apostles who were there what to write, but they weren't there. Matthew was there, John was there. He's remembering what took place. Having loved his own who were in the world, okay, so it's talking about, this is really the eternal love of Jesus Christ for these men. That this is, um, and we'll see this in a minute, this is his choosing and loving them. And he says, with that state of mind, then he loved them to the end. That's the verb of the sentence. So you could throw all the rest away. And you could just say, Jesus loved them to the end. That's what John's communicating to us in this verse. Now, when it says to the end, what, what comes to your mind? What, how do you read that? Jesus loved them to the end. What comes to your mind? Like, to eternal. <clears throat> Is it eternally Is it to or to the end of his life? Is it to their completion? Does say, uh, some of your translations would say to the uttermost? This is the totality of God's love. This is to the end. This is to eternity. That Jesus loved these men, not just partially, or that it would end when he died on the cross, or he loved them eternally, to the end, to the uttermost, to the completion of the love of God. As much as God could love somebody, He loved these men. Because these men, all but one, will be eternally secure with Christ. And He'll say that here in a few minutes. Okay, so the, the, what John is trying to communicate is that Jesus loved these men as much as God could love. That's all He's trying to say. He just gives us a lot of modifying phrases. All right, now the next three verses, and it reads this way in your scripture, maybe there's one at the very end, is one sentence. Okay? And it's the same kind of structure that we just went through. There's just simple action. And all the other is to give us information. So let's walk through the information. So he says, during supper, and you can't exactly pin down the sequence of events during the supper. Okay, but the best I can make of it is that the Lord's Supper didn't come at the beginning. It didn't come at the end. It came during the meal. It's not something that got added at the very beginning. He said, oh, let me show you this first. Or at the end, he said, now we need to do this. It just came naturally during the meal. It doesn't appear, and if you go and read carefully the other gospel writers, that's what you'll get. And did Jesus wash the feet before the meal? You would think yes, right? But you can't dogmatically say that. It doesn't read that way, because this is only John who writes about it, right? And now he's saying it's during the meal. And then we're going to go to the washing of the feet. So which is it, John? And he doesn't tell us. And you can't pin, pin it down of exactly what the sequence is. So, we'll just read it as, it as it states, that during supper, so they're eating, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Now, I want to talk about this, right? We've looked at this before, right? Where 
um, look down a little bit later in, I think it's like 20 something, where we have this speaking about Judas and the devil again. Yeah, down in verse 27, where it says, after the, mor- after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. He notices Christ commanding the action, not Judas deciding what to do. All right, so that phrase, that Satan entered into Jesus, then you look over at Luke 22, verse 8. We looked at this before. Sorry, what did I say? Probably not. You know, we heard about that in the sermons, uh, right? Just checking the see if you were Jesus Christ never became sin, never was sinful, never took on the form of sin, never joined forces with Satan, never entered the kingdom of darkness. He was simply treated like he was with him. Not that he ever was. Jesus remained perfectly righteous even through the sacrifice on the cross. Always. Anything else is blasphemy. If he would have joined forces with the evil one, then he would not have been a worthy sacrifice. He must have remained righteous in order to be a worthy sacrifice. How they miss that, I don't know. Chapter 22, verse 8 of Luke. And Jesus sent Peter and John... Um, not in the right place? Verse 3, maybe? Yes. Verse 3 of chapter 22. That's where, by the way, you find that it's Peter and John, right? That's your Bible trivia. Only that one verse, 22.8, tells you that it's Peter and John who go to prepare the sacrifice. Verse 3 of chapter 22. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. Those are the only two places in all scripture that I could find where Satan ever entered into anybody. Okay, this is when Judas went to betray, and then after he took the morsel with Christ, then he goes to betray. Those are the only two places I find. And that's not what he says in this um, where we're at at the beginning of this verse, in chapter 13 and verse 2. It says, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. What does that mean? What does it mean that the devil, Satan, put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus? How does that work? What does that mean? Well, he already had some passion for he knew he was, I mean, not tax collector, but he knew he was taking money from all of the... He's a thief, He's right? a thief, He's yeah. pilfering Thank from the, the money box. That's definitely so true. He, that he knew that this guy might have had a heart that wasn't tuned in with Jesus. Is that a temptation? Yeah. The devil did? Yeah. yeah and um, can the devil read your mind? No. No, no. no but he can but your action look at the see. pictures. Exactly. Exactly. So how is it that if he can't read your mind that he can put into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus Christ. 
Can the devil put something in your heart? Yes. Mm -hmm. Spiritually. How does that work? Well, let me ask you. In Scripture, what is the heart? It's the seed of the soul, right? And the soul is what? It's what makes you you, right? It's your mind, your will, and your emotions. So when he says that he puts into the heart of Judas, he's saying that he's putting putting into the mind of Jesus the thought to betray Judas, the thought to betray Jesus. I'm glad you guys are up. Is that violating the will of Judas? <coughs> to put a thought into his mind to betray Jesus Christ? Let me ask you this. Do you ever have a thought? And you go, where did that come from? Because it's not what you would want to be thinking. Right? Is that sinful? I had a discussion with one of you a couple weeks ago. Is that sinful when that thought comes into your mind? No, what would you call that? It's temptation. Right? What you do with the thought is either righteousness or sin. Good. But that's where it has value to make a distinction between the scripture talking about the mind and the heart. Yes. Because the mind has to do with the, the, the capacity we have to take in and assimilate information and catalog it. The heart, when it speaks in relationship to the mind as opposed to the emotions, it's talking about the will, which is that part right. of our minds that we act upon what we know. That's right. And you have information all the time coming into <coughs> your mind that really didn't originate with you. Right? All the time. What you do with that is your will. And at that point, it becomes righteousness or sin. But Martin Luther had a good quote about that. He said... Uh, he Which came, Martin Luther? He said, you can't keep a bird from soaring overhead, but you can't keep it from building a nest in your ear. <laughs> you understood that, right? <laughs> All right, that's what's going on here in this verse. Is that Jesus, that, this, that de the devil had put in the thought into Jesus' mind that it would be a wise thing to do to betray Jesus Christ to the Jewish leaders. Now, we don't know all that was going on in Judas's mind. You know, a lot of people like to bail him out and say he was just trying to force Jesus' hand and make him go ahead and declare his kingdom and all. I, I don't give him that much credit. Okay? But you can think what you want. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> Judas in his will was not violated by Satan putting the thought into his mind. Judas could have rejected the thought, rejected the idea, and not gone to the Jewish leaders. Now we can talk about that, right? By the ordination of God. Did he really have a choice? Yes, he had a choice. How do I know that? Why do I emphatically say that Judas decided to go betray Jesus Christ because he wanted to? Why would I make such a declaration? 
Jesus told him during the supper, uh, or maybe before, he said, these things must happen for the scripture to be fulfilled, but woe be to him. That's right. And so Judas is still culpable for what he does here. He doesn't get off the hook. Judas is an unbeliever and will spend eternity where, where Satan does. He's not a true believer. Never was. And he is culpable for the actions that he takes here. Satan does not violate his will. Judas does what he wants to do. Now, he cooperates with Satan. You could definitely say that. You could say that Satan in, um, you know, strengthens him. You could say all of those things. But that doesn't make him not culpable. He is culpable. And so when it says here that um, the devil already having put into the the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus Christ. It means what's on Christ's mind is that he loves his disciples and he loves them eternally. What's on Judas's mind is when is the right time to betray this guy? That's what's going on here. He's not on the same page at all with all the other guys. And so that's what John is trying to help us understand. This is what's going on. This is the dynamic in the minds of the people sitting in the room. And so Judas is looking for the opportune time. Remember, he doesn't know he's going to do it. He doesn't know it's this night. Go ahead. Um, based on what we've been talking about with, you know, the fact that Satan wasn't in Judas at that point, and that Satan had tempted Judas, where does that fit in with when Judas, Satan actually enters him? Does that mean that Judas had to accept that, or was it had he already been so far gone at that point that it just was an inevitability? Preview, okay? Because we'll get there when we get oh, to verse 27. Right? But how do I see that? Even when Satan enters into whatever that means, right? You become demon possessed, or I think that is a possibility. Even at that point, he does not violate the will of Judas. Judas is so cooperating with Satan at that point that it's like they're the same person. This is like this is a bad analogy. And this is like Jesus and the Father always doing the same will. At this point, the will of Satan and the will of Judas are entwined. They are one and the same. They desire the same thing. Well, we studied earlier in John chapter 6, verse 71, or verse 70, Jesus says, one of you is a devil. That's right. That's right. So he, 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 is, he is so in union with the devil, it's like they're the same person. Now, does that mean a person today can be demon-possessed? Personally, I think that's a possibility. Okay. You may disagree with that, but I don't see any reason why that could be a possibility today or what's then. But we'll talk about that another day. That's not what this subject is about. And Judas's will never, never is violated here. He is doing exactly what he wants to do. He's described elsewhere as the son of perdition. Perdition. Right. Uh, it's pretty strong. Now, by the ordination of God, Judas was selected to be the one who would cooperate with the devil to betray Jesus Christ. How does that work out with the responsibility of men? There's our two minds, right? Our two pillars that never intersect. 
It's always in Scripture that way. John doesn't attempt to explain it. Jesus didn't attempt to explain it. I'm not going to attempt to explain it. It is both are true. And they are both in Scripture. So either you're going to disbelieve Scripture or you're going to believe it. And how it actually works out, maybe we'll know in eternity, maybe not. Some things God has not chosen to reveal in Scripture. That's one of them. David, when he goes out and hangs himself after all is done, yeah. is that a true sign of remorse? Is he remorseful? Yes. Because he, probably Satan left him after he used him. Is that repentance? No. Okay. But is it remorse? Yes. And, the, and there are all kinds of people who are sorry for the things they did. Evil people are sorry for the things they did. But that's not repentance. You don't ever conflict the two. Because one is not the other. Okay, so we go on. So we've got where the mind of Judas Iscariot, and then we go to what Jesus knows again. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. The come from God and going back to God, we've seen multiple times, right? Jesus, over and over and over, declared to the people, I am the bread of life come down from heaven. I mean, he said it in multiple ways. That he who sent me, meaning he came from the Father. And that he said often that I'm going back to my Father, and where I go, you cannot go. Right? He said that to both believers and unbelievers. But this is the part before that, where it says, Jesus, knowing that all things, that the Father had given him all things into his hand. What does that mean? What does that mean? Jesus Christ sitting there, loving his disciples to the end, and at the same time knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was from the Father and he was going back. What is that in the mind of Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands? What's going on here? He still had the power to do what he felt was right, even though that would have still been the same thing that God wanted. Who's orchestrating what's going on here this night? Be more specific. Jesus Christ. Because his will is intertwined with the Father, the Father has given it all authority into his hands and said, execute our eternal plan. Because only Jesus could. Jesus is the man sitting in the room with them. Jesus is the man who's going to command Judas to go betray him. And so the Father, in perfect love and trust of the Son, has said, execute our plan, up to the point where you can. And that's what Jesus, Jesus will pray later. I've done all I could do. And now, Father, please, you do. That's what he'll pray in chapter 17. Because he will, there will become a point where Jesus can't do anymore. Because he's done all he can do, and the Father must take over. But that's not this point yet. Right now, everything is in Jesus' hands. He's orchestrating. He's conducting the show. I was just going to say, you know, when Peter cuts off the uh, ear of the high priest's slave, I mean, he says, could I not call down 70 legions of angels to 
and he could have. Yeah. You know the interesting thing, just so you can go study this somewhere else. Um, when they're in the upper room, Jesus says, we need a sword. And they have two swords. That's enough. And he says, that's enough. Mm -hmm. And then Peter uses one of those swords to cut the guy's ear off. <clears throat> so you go, what's going on there? Well, you go think about it. Because he does ask him, do we have any swords? And he says, two's enough. You know, there's only a whole troop of Romans coming against him, but two swords is enough. Just go study that. They're not really swords, though, are they? It's long enough to cut a guy's ear off. He's not going for his ear. Peter was just a bad sword. Right, he's a fisherman. Come on. You don't catch fish with swords. You do play them. That's a knife. Verse 4. Jesus, with all this in his mind, here's the action. He got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, he girded himself. Now this is, the first verse is the love of Jesus Christ. What is this? This is the action that's congruent with the love. Right? Love never just sits there. Love always is, always is demonstrated by action. This is the action of Jesus Christ that's congruent with the love that he has eternally for these men. That's why he gets up and does this. Because he does love them as much as God could love someone. So that's all John's trying to tell us in those first four verses is that Jesus loved these men and because he loved them he got up to the table and girded himself with the towel. But he just adds a lot of other information. I'm grateful for that. So you go into verse 5, and it just begins to read as a narrative. Then he poured the water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Whose feet did he wash first? True question. We don't know. But I think I know whose feet he washed last. Yeah, you might say Judas. Maybe that was first. I actually think Peter was last. Because after Peter has his fit, <laughs> there's no more washing. The washing's done. So I actually think Peter was last. And I think Christ did it on purpose. Because Peter's the one who always spoke for the crowd. And I think they were all apprehensive when Christ stood up and took his robe off and girded himself and began to wash these guys' feet. I think they're all just dumbfounded by it. Why would I say that? Why would they be dumbfounded because Jesus Christ got up and began to wash their feet? I think it's such a low way to do this. It is the low way to I mean, you know, they wore sandals. And they walked where horses walked. They walked on dusty roads. And their feet were nasty. And so to take some of the sandals off and to wash their feet, which was needed if you're going to sit down and eat with a bunch of guys, right? Right? A bunch of smelly feet guys. 
But they needed to be washed. Well, they, they reclined and laid out. Absolutely. Time, so then you'd smell the other. That's right. So, they didn't have cologne. Yeah. So, this is a lonely, lonely task. Only the lowest servants would do this task. And there is no servant in this room. No one of lower rank in this room. And so there's no one to do this. And so these men have not had their feet washed. Because this would be something that you didn't do for yourself, that someone else did for you. And so Jesus begins to wash these guys' feet, and nobody says a word. You have no conversation here whatsoever. It's just Jesus washing the feet, and I think they are all dumbfounded. They, they, they can't speak. They don't know what to say. And then I think, I could be wrong, last of all, he comes to Peter. And Peter does what? He protests a little bit. And he asks a question. And it's like this, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Like, I can't believe that you would do this. It's that kind of statement, not a protest. It, it is a little bit, but it's, it's more like, like you're going to wash my feet? And this is what all the other guys have been thinking as they wash their feet. You're going to wash my feet? Because this, you know, you may, any one of them would have been willing to wash the feet of Jesus. Because they knew they were lower rank than he was, without any question. Never would they dare wash each other's feet. Why would I say such a thing? During this meal, what kind of conversation do these disciples have? Who was the greatest? It's during this meal where they argue about which one of them is the greatest. Now, don't know the sequence of events, right? Don't know. I think maybe Jesus got up to wash their feet during that argument just to show them that's not how you gain honor. That's not how you become the best or the greatest. You become the greatest by serving the most. So I think maybe, I could be wrong, I'm okay with that, but I think maybe these guys began to argue and Jesus just quietly got up and took off his robe, girded himself, went over, got a basin, poured some water in it, and began to wash their feet. And they're all speechless because they've been arguing. And I had a feeling that if they were arguing, that Peter was probably the loudest, because he usually was. And he knew he was the closest to the Lord, right? He prepared the meal. Where were they? And so as Christ comes to wash his feet, he's, he's in that state of dumbfoundedness, like all they are. And says, you're going to wash my feet. And then Jesus, notice how patiently he says this. He says, Jesus said to him, what I do now, you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. This is what I've been telling you, right? They don't know what's going on. None of this makes sense to them. It won't make sense to them until Pentecost. Then it makes perfect sense to them. So they, 
Jesus, instead of saying, yeah, I'm going to wash your feet, right, just sit there. No, he says, I know you don't understand what's going on. I don't expect you to. But later, you will understand what I'm doing. Then Peter prays him. Because Jesus basically told him, yeah, I'm going to wash your feet. And you really don't know what's going on. Then he protests, right? <laughs> because then, Jesus, then Peter basically shouts at Jesus and says, never shall you wash my feet. <coughs> and then Jesus patient, trying to instruct and teach, just looks back at him and says, I don't wash your feet. You don't have any part with me. So it's either me washing your feet or you're not one of mine. <coughs> now, Jesus is saying more than just that he needs to wash Peter's feet, I believe. What's he really saying to Peter? What's he really saying to Peter? What's the spiritual truth behind Jesus washing the feet of Peter and saying to him, I don't wash you. You have no part with Christ doesn't spiritually cleanse you. You are not clean. That's right. That's right. Every human being, every human being needs to be washed by Jesus Christ. We're needful of that. And we can't wash ourselves. I think part of what he, Jesus was going to do was revealing the, the false humility that is sort of cast in the same mindset that oftentimes I hear people say, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. Yeah. Well, what, what greater arrogance could we demonstrate than to imply that God's forgiveness is not adequate? Right. And here, Peter is implying that he knows more about what I'll be done here than God. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Notice the patience of Jesus with us. I mean, just the, the tenderness and the gentleness. He's washing the guy's feet, nasty, smelly feet. And yet he's so patient with him. And says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And so that Peter, still not understanding, clearly not understanding, says, wash my hands and wash my head. And then Jesus patiently, just continuing to teach, continuing to instruct, continuing to give him truth that later will make total sense to him, but at this point does not. Right? Goes on and he says to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. Now, this has further implications even for us. Okay? Because I do think this is what Jesus is talking about. He is talking to Peter. Did you need to be washed by me? Everybody does. And then he gives them this statement that if you've taken a bath, then all you need to do is wash your feet and you'll be still clean. And you know what that's like, right? You go up and you get a bath and you go run, you run out into the yard and your feet get dirty, so you go back in and you wash them off in the tub, right? Or in the shower. And then you're, you're still clean. Now, the spiritual side of that is what? That as you walk in the world daily, you get your feet dirty. <coughs> Right? You you not only do you get the pollution of the world, maybe in your mind, even in your heart, maybe even you 
fall and you sin before the Lord, that what we need is a daily washing by Jesus Christ. That that needs to happen continuously in your life. Because there are things that we think that we shouldn't. There are actions that we do that we shouldn't. And so we need a continuous washing and a forgiveness. That's why the St. John, the writer in 1 John, say that if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Because he understands life and that we do sin. And so that's what Jesus is saying to him, that once I wash you, you're clean. But you will still need to have your feet washed. You still need me to wash away those sins also. So Jesus so tenderly instructed. And Peter, you know, now is just sitting there, humbled, aghast really at what his Lord is doing in washing his feet. But Jesus finishes, dries off Peter's feet, and then John concludes this little section. And he says that Jesus said when he was talking to Peter, that you're clean, but not all of you. There's his first indication that he's going to reveal the betrayer. And John gives us a parenthetical statement that he says in verse 11, For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. Now, you know that caused some consternation in the hearts of the disciples. He said, Peter, you are clean, but not all of you are clean. And so now they are a little contentious because which one of them didn't claim or how many of them aren't claimed that's what's now going through the disciples' minds and so Christ will give full explanation of what he means here in just a couple of verses but this is the, the humility of the creator to wash the creation off of the feet of the men who didn't understand you know, they're arguing I'm going to be greater in the kingdom of God and then there's Jesus kneeling and washing your feet. And they're all humbled. And Peter protesting, and then Christ saying, You don't have any part with me. And saying, I don't want that. And so he's humbled again. And so this is a masterful picture, is it not? Of not only the humility and the tenderness of Jesus, but in his capability to demonstrate his love and at the same time teach these guys what they needed to know. It's a marvelous picture. It's a picture for us and how we're to behave in the kingdom of God and how we're to treat one another. You know, these guys would not have washed their feet because you don't wash the feet of an equal. If somebody is lowly and he does that, but Jesus is teaching not true. Not true. The greatest wash the feet of the least. He washed Judas's feet in this scenario knowing he was going to betray him. He didn't, because he doesn't point Judas out at this point. He hasn't revealed who he is yet. He washes all of their feet. And you know what? When he gets up and he girds himself with a towel, his feet are still dirty. Nobody's washed his feet. But everybody else is clean. So just think about that. That's Jesus at the Lord's Supper. His feet are still dirty. Everybody else is clean. We have no indication here that anybody watched his feet. 
it's almost like no one there had the right to even. They weren't. They weren't even. They couldn't even wash. They couldn't wash his feet. Yeah, they're silent. Just think about it. You're, you're just. You're just. Been arguing. The couch in the middle of your argument demonstrates this incredible humility. Gives this teaching that you really don't understand, but you know it's profound. And he gets back up and sits back down at the table. See, this is all happening during the meal, I believe. And this is uh, Jesus teaching them because of their argument. Again, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. But you, you know, I, I look for it. Can we sequence these events? You can't. In Scripture, you can't do it. So I have my own way, I think, about it, okay? That's my sequence. I don't know, comments? Something you want to say? It's kind of humbling, isn't it? Um, I'd like some clarification about something you said at the beginning. Not about this lesson, it's actually about what Pastor Shane was talking about, about Christ becoming. Okay. Second um, Corinthians five twenty-one. How does that? He became show? sin that we might become the righteousness of God. I think in that verse, we were going to say it in a explanation. Of explanatory way, we would say that God treated Jesus like he was sent so that God might treat us like we were Jesus. That's what he's saying. You know, he says we're the righteousness of Christ, and we are. But I often don't demonstrate that. I, you call me righteous? No. I wouldn't call me righteous. You shouldn't call me righteous. Because there are things I do that I'm ashamed of. So, well, that verse, that's the gospel in a nutshell. God's calling me the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but I'm not. So what's he saying? Is that he treats me like I'm the righteousness of Jesus Christ, even though I'm not. Just like he treated Jesus like he was sin, even though he was not. Well, what's the danger then just statement like it says? It's what it says, right? Because he became sin. What's the danger? Because those people that Shane was talking about, say that Jesus literally became sinful when he was on the cross. And never did the Savior become sinful. But that sinful speak of being a sinner and he was not a sinner. And that's what they say. He was. Well, that's different from being a sinner. Being treated like you're sinful is different than being being punished because you are a sinner. There's a difference. Profound difference those people say Jesus it's what the verse says Jesus became a sinner no it's not what the verse says it's a misunderstanding the righteous savior never could become sinful that's what I was saying at the beginning does that make sense to you guys God treated Jesus like he was a sinner father why have you betrayed you know turned your back on me forsaken me because that's the way it felt to him and God literally did turn his back on him, but not because he was sinful. But he was sin, was he not, at that moment? No, he was treated like he was sin. Well, says he... Be careful. The righteous Savior could never be sin. Could not become sin. No, it's not associated with sin in any way other than the Father treated him like he was. Start saying it was like the Father. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that doesn't make him sinful. It doesn't make him sin. 
never, never did Jesus Christ become that. Even though that's what the verse says, right? He became sin. He did. He was treated like he was sinful. Go ahead. It means he became a total recipient of the wrath of God. That's right. In order to be the sacrificial lamb that perfectly paid for our sin. And the only way he could perfectly pay is if he was not sin. Exactly. That's the only way he could pay that price, if he was not sin. Because that only that sinless, spotless sacrifice is acceptable to God. So Jesus could not become sin, and God accept that sacrifice. It just that theology does not play with the rest of the gospel of the, of the Bible. It doesn't. He became sin in that he was the object of God's wrath, not treated as he was sinful. sinful. Right. That's why I say he was treated as if he was sinful. What if it happens to sinners? They get punished by God. That's what happens. Well, in all of those examples that Shane gave were examples of false teachers. That's right. Because they teach a false doctrine. That's right. And in Romans chapter 16, in the 17th and 18th verses, Shane did exactly what God commanded us to do this morning. Right. Because Paul said to the Romans, if there is one within the body that teaches false doctrine, then mark him and identify him and have nothing to do with him. Right. Not embrace him and try to find some common ground. That's right. That's right. That's exactly what he was doing this morning, even though we don't necessarily realize that's what he was doing. Not... We could go on a long time about this, right? It's, it's a fabulous subject to talk about, but you need to think rightly about it. Um, I won't go any further. We could, and it's a, it's, a, it's a right thing to bring up and talk about. And that's why I stopped and I said what I said. Because it's crucial that you think correctly about that. Matter of fact, it's the difference between tribute and false glory. One thing I was thinking about is just there's nothing wrong with that verse, but everything is based on, on, on the verse with continuity and consistency sure. biblically. And when you go and look at Revelation, uh, well, just look at the verses in front of that verse. Right, that too. But I was thinking of Revelation, there at the end, what does it say? Well, it, it says, Who is worthy right. of the scroll? And no, not anyone except the Lamb. The lamb. Yeah. Who is Jesus Christ? Well, that it would be good in this particular case of Jesus and being sin or not sin. Do the scriptures interpret scripture? Because there's in, the, in Romans and Hebrews and First John all talked about the concept of propitiation. Mm-hmm. And that's where we have to put the concept of that into that verse. That's right. That's right. And that's what the false teachers don't do. Those same men that you named this morning, by the way, would, would distort the scripture that we read not too long ago when Jesus said that he said you are gods. And they will say that Jesus became sinful and you became God. Sounds like Mormon. They're all little gods. That's what they would say. That's false doctrine. But those same men, all three of them, and woman, would would say that that's what the next statements would be. That's where that teaching leads to. Because you became the righteousness of God. So you are God. That's where they go. 
with that. Mm -hmm. Now for this morning. Thank you.